So I might just start off by just asking where am I speaking to you from today? I'm in in Melbourne. It's grey and drizzly and windy Melbourne. Yeah, it's the same here. I'm in a, a suburb called Dolphin Point, sort of about 10 minutes south south of Ulladulla on the coast. It's actually in Yuan country. So I just wanted to first of all acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I speak on today and acknowledge the Yuan nation and its people and recognise their strength and resilience and their capacity and to celebrate Aboriginal people, past, present and emerging. So do you know what nation you're? What nation? Uh, Melbourne's Nam. Acknowledge the Nam Nation as well today. What are so these are the things that I was personally interested in your uh, memoir. Really loved it, and I could relate to some of the emotional turmoil that was happening at the time for you. I was I could just pick out a sentence and say, "Oh my gosh, I could." That's me. So, so I'm sure a lot of adopted people, if they you know read your book, they could definitely draw out a lot of content and things that would help them on their journey as well. So, but you did, you have kept a journal for most of your life. You've accumulated hundreds of thousands of records over decades. So how did that sort of discipline get you fit and have that sort of stamina to be ready for what's written in your memoir that you've just released? Yeah, it's been highly valuable doing it. Uh, and I have done it off and on for, you know, the vast majority of my life and, and particularly around issues of adoption and my ancestry. It's a way of recording and ordering and researching what became a, an increasingly complex family his, history. I think one of the things that's most important for me is that it gave me a sense of control over the things that I'd learned that made you feel out of control. And so I would readily put down a really difficult, complex bit of family history that I'd uncovered and detail it and sort of wrestle with how I felt about it. And you could then close the computer and walk away and stop ruminating on it. And it didn't necessarily resolve something that was too difficult, but it, it put it in a box. And it was always going to be there. And like I think with a, a lot of adopted people, you often don't get all of the story at one time. You get bits, there's pieces to the jigsaw. And I had this fantastic reference that when I decided to write the book, I could go back over literally hundreds of thousands of words of things that happened and when they happened. And not always how I felt about it, but it's it's just a great way of, uh, taking control over the things that you learn. Yeah, that's so good. That word, like taking control, I think is really good. And just being able to compartmentalize something on paper as opposed to just in your mind. So, in the past four years, you've actually spoken with a lot of people to help contribute to your book. So, I'll just list off these include sons and daughters of priests, mothers of the children of priests, nuns several male priests, a female priest, even failed priests, priests who have married and had families, individuals who have found their um, priests via DNA databases and several adoptees. Um, You've also interviewed lawyers, psychologists, barristers, professors, um, a social anthropologist, 
doctors, sex abuse counsellors, social workers and journalists adding to your journals, family archives and audio recordings related to your ancestry. That is massive. (laughs) That is so much research. You must have just, yeah, pages and pages worth. But how did it all begin for you four years ago? Yeah, well, it's now it's now clicked over to five years. So five years, yeah. essentially, I didn't intend to write a book. You know, I wasn't necessarily wanting to have something published. I wanted to continue with the journals. I'd always been fascinated with the fact that I was adopted, and without giving a you know potted history of, of the past, it it's something I'd always wanted to know about. So I kept this journal going and. A little over five years ago, I did a DNA test that led to discovering who my father was, and I discovered he was a Catholic priest. And 40 years earlier, even though she had said she wanted nothing to do with me, I'd been told that my mother was a Catholic nun. And when I found out who my father was, the penny dropped and many things made sense because I'd been given a lot of different stories about my paternity over the years and now I realised why he'd been hidden. So I ended up, you know, I had this astounding secret that had been resolved and so I quit my job and I thought I'd go back over my journals and I'd do, you know, research about who my father was, finding out that you're the hidden child of a priest. The most common response is to think you're the only one. And I discovered there's tens and tens of thousands all over the world. And the church has been really good at silencing the mothers, many with NDAs and confidentiality agreements, and essentially denying the existence of the children. So many, like me, have been adopted and some fostered and some raised by their mothers. But the more I dug into it, the more... I realised this was a scandal that I'd uncovered and there's, you know, the reality is there's very few children of priests that have ever gone public. There's really only a handful globally that have done any prolonged talking about their situation and there's not another book like mine that actually discovers, well, that sort of blows the whistle on the church. There are a couple of memoirs that look at the church through rose-coloured glasses from devout believers, but nobody that has looked at the damage that the church has done. You know, some research has been done. 56% of the children of priests have attempted suicide or had suicidal ideation. So when I started discovering these things, I realised that it was all too significant to to bury and to just put in a journal and that, you know, I, I started researching and talking to all of these people you just mentioned and and, and wanted the book to be published and for people to know about it. So it's three or four years of writing and then another 12 months of editing and I've done a lot of promotion since and, and it's now become available overseas and there's some interest there. So, yeah, look, I'm a, a reluctant author and ironically it's turned into you know, a great thing. It's been really cathartic to get it out there and, and I've had so many people, as I say, come forward and make contact and say, you're telling my story. This is what happened to me. 
Yeah, that's so powerful. Yeah, it's a, it's about that impact, isn't it? And no doubt that it will have that ripple effect for years to come and more stories and, and people will come forward and you'll be told and notified and it might, that's kind of, I guess, another affirmation for you that, that it's, that your book has had a positive impact on people. Yeah. Also, a few years ago, I just wanted to mention that in your book, you were in a rundown Melbourne pub and you delivered a presentation to around 20 elderly ex-seminarians who wanted your life story. Can you remember what revelation you sort of had when you were telling your story to these ex-seminarians? Uh, yeah, it was it was a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre day. It was twenty or thirty of them that gathered regularly. I think every month or every other month, they they got together and had a lunch at a pub. And I told my story, and it was pin dropped silent in the room as I went through the things that I told them. And in so many ways, it seemed like I was something that they all knew of that they never thought would go public, that no one would actually step forward and say, this is my story. So there was great shock on their faces. And in a lot of ways, it was a warm reception. But I I left feeling, after having a number of discussions with these seminarians, and many of them hadn't become priests, some had maybe been ordained, but resigned shortly after, and a number had left without being ordained but what i ended up leaving with was a feeling of being a victim a victim of the church so that you know that 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 was only five years ago so you know sort of mid-50s and i'd always i think stubbornly you know out of bloody-mindedness told myself i wasn't a victim i wasn't a survivor of something that had happened because I, i i have had a fantastic life i had wonderful adoptive parents who now are both dead, but I had another a brother who was also adopted. And I had a fabulous life, but I had this awful stone in my shoe that was the adoption story that I knew was full of secrets and and lies. And I came away realising that, because I'd, re- I'd also discovered there were many other children of priests and they'd been hidden away, that, that I was actually a victim of the church. And that these men that I've met, they knew of another or many other people that were in a similar boat to me. And it made me realise that my birth mother had also been treated abysmally by the church, even though there was a relationship of sorts with my birth father. My birth father was 30 years older than her and he was her priest and she was about so there was a you know a significant form of spiritual abuse coercive control when they first met she was a teenager and he's 30 years older and and i later learned as i started researching that that's a stereotypical scenario of the children of priests that you know the priest is much older he's you know he, he has authority he's you know essentially the hands and feet of christ on earth and very often they're educated and they have money or at least resources and a roof over their head. And the mother is the opposite in every conceivable way. They're usually much younger, usually vulnerable, usually not educated. And, and of course, that's something that's common within the wider adoption community, that often the father, when they 
run, as the priests nearly always do, they had this authority over the women. And, and I was born in 1961. And of course, in those days, you know, I was the result of a, you know, a closed and forced adoption. And my mother had no options. There was no, you know, single mother's pension because she was, you know, devout Catholic. Having a child, she, she didn't have me until she was 27. So, you know, a decade after she first met, uh, met my father. But within her community, it was such a shameful thing, of course. It was inconceivable that, you know, a woman could have a child to a priest. But like anyone else within the adoption community in that era, it was such a, a shameful thing and the opportunities available to the women were virtually zero. So adoption was an option for a Catholic. Abortion wasn't. And and that's what happened. Wow, such a huge story. Yeah, I guess that misuse of power and yeah, like you said, spiritual um, misuse of power, which is yeah, a big one. I'm just going to quote from your memoir. It's called Tell No One on the introduction page. You said that sharing your story with people for the first time underscored just how painful it is. And that would have been when you realised that you needed to obviously get more involved, write, write more and find out more about your past. You were adopted at birth. How did you come into the hands of Roy and Bet, your adoptive parents? Uh, well, as I mentioned, my brother... Damien was also adopted and interestingly he was so my parents were older you know they were sort of uh, in their 30s and the local priest tapped my father on the shoulder one day and said oh have you considered adoption I think you would be you know an ideal couple to adopt a child and if my father agreed he was going to do the rest he was going to take care of it and and it could well be that my brother is also the child of a priest. We don't know that, but it's certainly possible. And so my parents very quickly said yes. They completed the paperwork. Importantly, they hadn't completed any of the documentation that you normally do through the Catholic Church or the Catholic Family Welfare Bureau to adopt where you actually apply. So it was something initiated by the church through the, the priest. So they selected somebody. And so they took my brother and 15, 18 months later, a phone call was received by my parents and they certainly, so at this stage were 39, hadn't anticipated having any other children. They, they seemed very mature and for that era were, you know, very late to have a child. But 15 months later, they got a phone call and said, Roy and Bet, we have a child. We'd like you to adopt another child. You need to come and collect him tomorrow. And that was me. And I had been sitting in, in a nursery in, in the city in Melbourne and had been there for seven days. My mother had me, was back in Sydney and totally not expecting another child. They dutifully went and collected me and had a second a second child in their family. And that's, you know, what I found out from many people, that's something that the church often did. People were selected to have children of priests to adopt them. It's one of the very common scenarios in the children that are hard to place are fostered or, you know, very often the mothers don't want to relinquish the child and they raise these children, but very often in very difficult circumstances. So commonly the church might put a roof over the woman's head, allow them accommodation, maybe assist with food and upkeep and the like, but always on the condition that they tell nobody who the father is of the child. So strict conditions. So that 
I had a lot of dealings with the Catholic Family Welfare Bureau, and of course, the Catholics dealt with adoption in their own um, mysterious way. And there were lots of secrets and lots of missing records and documents that were supposed to exist that didn't exist or had been lost or misplaced. And nearly all children of priests have that experience. I ended up having to go to the Department of Justice in Victoria to poke the church to get uh, a little more assistance with the documentation. But nonetheless, the, the key birth records of, of my adoption don't exist. And that is the case with most children of priests. So how did you get your records? Well, the, the birth certificate was straightforward. So I got that when I was late 20s and the birth certificate itself had my mother's name, her age, where she was born. She was 27. She had an unusual name, so she was made it easier to trace her and she was born in South Australia. But everything else beyond that, the church wasn't forthcoming with and they had an obligation to to, to come forward with more information. But over the decades, I, I, I went back a number of times trying to obtain information and, and it wasn't forthcoming and it was only in this last five years when I went through the Department of Justice that some of it has become available. For a religious institution, for it not to have a copy of my baptism certificate is a pretty unusual thing. But yeah, I found out many children of priests have learned that their father, their birth father, baptised them. I don't, I don't have one. And many of the records that should have been kept were destroyed, and that's commonplace. But uh, I don't think that would surprise too many people that have much knowledge of the Catholic Church. So your adoption was, I guess, fairly unorthodox, but your your adoptive experience and family, you actually, you know, had quite a a Catholic experience with Roy and Bet, but then I guess you kind of, when you're a teenager, you had different ideas about that. Can you tell me about that particular age? Well, I guess 60s and 70s, you know, there were so many adopted kids around, but it wasn't something that, in well, in my experience, many people spoke of that often. You know, I went to a Catholic boys' school, and so it was it's a fairly brutal experience at times, and we had teaching brothers who were well, at least one or two were violent in the extreme. So there's a lot of bullying and there was a lot of hassling kids who were different in some way. And some of the kids who acted out and were really troublesome, surprise, surprise, were the adopted kids and that secret got out. And so it was something that you didn't really want to fess up to very often that, that you were adopted. And so I kept it quiet. It wasn't something that I spoke about too much. But like many other adopted people in that era, you know, the church didn't seem to go to too much trouble to try and match up siblings. So my brother and I looked completely different and our interests were totally different. We, we couldn't be more different. And even the physical connection to our adoptive parents, we, we were four very, very different people. And it was hilarious, you know, Family, friends would come around and my friends would, you know, come to our house and people would say, oh, look, I, you know, even though you look totally different, I can see the connection. You've all got the same nose or you've all got the, and they were just kidding themselves. They were making it up. We couldn't be more different. And, and I think in a lot of ways because it was so stark and because my adoptive parents also had 
fairly unconventional ancestries. I think that's part of why we stuck together so fiercely, that it was just the four of us and we didn't really have large families to fall back on or there wasn't this great network of ancestors. And to the day they died, we were incredibly close and we didn't fight either, which was also pretty unusual. You know, there's a lot of large Irish Catholic families amongst my peers or Italian Catholics amongst my peers at school. And there was all sorts of family barneys going on and people not getting on. And But we were incredibly close and that was something a lot of people remarked on. So, you know, it's something the church did well. We, we ended up, Damien and I ended up with a, a fabulous family unit, but it was a fairly tough time at Catholic education in the 60s and 70s. And you didn't want to stick your head up above the parapet because uh, it might get knocked off. And yeah. there were some adopted kids, you know, one kid, as I recount in the book, was beaten badly by a brother, a teaching brother at the school, another who had poured mower fuel on him himself and ignited. They were tough days. And at the time, it, it was just what you were experiencing and seeing, but the sort of thing that if you, you know, tell you, your kids about some of the things that happened at school, their eyes nearly fall out of their head because it was very extreme. Yeah, it sounds brutal. So I wanted to talk about like you have, so you've got your wife, Kate, but you you met her in um, your early 20s. Did you have any fears about finding information about who your birth parents were at the time? Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, in 1984, the adoption laws had changed. And so it was a big thing in the media. And there was lots of coverage of it tended to be that the happy ending stories of, you know, reuniting families or uniting for the first time families of people finding half siblings or full siblings and meeting their birth parents and, you know, lots of hugs and, and teary eyes, good things. And occasionally you'd read stories of things that went horribly wrong. And, you know, I've always been optimistic. Beth, in particular, my, my adoptive mother was incredibly optimistic and she'll be right and we'll be okay. And I always told myself it would work out the way everyone would want. But, yeah, you're always fearful that what if they were dead? What if there was some awful violent explanation to your existence what if they were in jail what if they were awful people or 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 what if they wanted nothing to do with you and you had another what would feel like massive rejection and as it as it turned out you know some of that some of that was true but yeah i i didn't i never anticipated that was going to be my reality but as it turned out yeah i did have a, a second rejection i went to the catholic family welfare bureau and got my my birth records and was was dissuaded by the counsellor that was managing, you know, my case to make contact and didn't insist but very strongly encouraged me to allow her to make contact with my birth mother on my behalf, which I agreed to, and she made contact, came back to me a couple of weeks later, sat me down and said, you'll never see your mother, you'll never talk to her. You'll never meet her, go home and forget about Maggie forever. And that was it. There was nothing else. And it it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. 
And as I later learned, that was a not uncommon scenario for many, many people that dealt with the Catholic Family Welfare Bureau and particularly those that, you know, had 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 maternal or paternal explanations that were clergy. Yeah, and I guess you feeling that second rejection is like a double whammy. You know, you you didn't know at that time that she signed that non-disclosure agreement. So your feelings of grief and and that sort of second loss, it would have felt quite strange knowing that your birth mum is alive, but yet she doesn't apparently doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Or it was like Jenny or someone that from the yeah. Catholic Welfare Bureau has sort of trying to push you away and steer you away and tell you to forget about it. You've got a great life, family and all of that. Um, yeah, be, be grateful. Yeah, be grateful. So I know I know many adoptees struggle with identity and self-esteem and these sorts of things can lead to long-term psychological issues and dysfunctional relationships, things like antisocial behaviour, substance abuse, and even you wrote in your memoir, the American Academy of Pediatrics, that adoptees, and you have mentioned this before, adoptees are nearly four times more likely to attempt suicide than non-adopted offspring. And the main reason why adoptees don't make contact with birth parents is fear of a second rejection. Why at that point, when you did get that second rejection, what happened for you at the time? And why then did you decide not to give up when you were told to just forget about it? Yeah, the, the the wrinkle for Kate and I was well. There, there are a couple of things, and one I think is very common is you were you were told, you know, within society, you were sort of particularly within the Catholic community, trying to find out details about your birth parents was seen as an ungrateful act. What's wrong with your adoptive parents? Well, there's nothing wrong with them. I just I just want to no more i'm just curious so that was a strong factor in my head and many many other catholic adoptees not to get their birth records that you will damage the relationship with your adoptive parents and i had a wonderful relationship with my adoptive parents so that was one factor and the other was that kate and i were late 20s and we were thinking about having kids and around that time we found she had this issue it's a long story the short version is it's a thing called malignant hyperprexia which meant pretty much everyone on her paternal side of the family were allergic to and had a very extreme response to anesthetics and it was likely that that was going to be something she would pass on to her children and i'd always believed that i had if my mother didn't want to meet with me or talk to me or have anything to do with me, in the very least I had a right to biological medical information. I, I thought it was just fair and reasonable. And, you know, one of these ironies of dealing with the church, it seemed like such a cold and calculating institution that everything was so damningly yes or no. And I could understand if she didn't want to meet it, it would be a painful episode in her life and fair enough. But I thought I had a right to that birth information, as all adoptees feel when you don't know the answers and you go to the doctor and you're asked of, you know, family histories of, I didn't know anything. And I believed it was my right and Kate's right and the right of my yet-to-be-born children to be aware of potential medical 
hurdles. And maybe maybe they had this rare malignant hyperprexia that Kate had. Or, you know, if it was that I was prone to cancer or melanomas or heart attack or blood pressure, you could do something about it. You know, you could you could deal with your lifestyle to try and account for something that you might be carrying in the gene pool. And and that got me over the line. That that's what you know, I had to put everything else in the past and, and thought, this isn't this isn't me. This is my kids. This is my future and my family and it's my kids and it's their kids. They've got a right to know these things. So that's why I after was told my mother wanted nothing to do with me, why I couldn't put it down, why I couldn't put it away. And for some months I did listen to the church and, and I went home like a good boy and and tried to forget about it, but I couldn't. And then, you know, one day I got on a tram and went into the city because it was, you know, the olden days and the 80s and got a phone book and found her name in the phone book and I, I dealt with Jigsaw, as it was called in those days, or Vanish now, who were fabulous in assisting me. And I was – Kate and I were trying to build a story about who my mother was and so we contacted maternal relatives trying to – piece together some information about who she was and, and where she was and what her life was. And Kate rang, posing as a long-lost friend of my birth mother and said, oh, look, I, you know, an old friend of Maggie's, I'm just wanting to, to I've lost contact, just wanted to find out how she is and, and where she is. And the woman at the other end of the line said, oh, you mean, you mean Maggie the nun? And that's the first I, I knew of it, and of course it was, you know, roughly 12 months after being told she wanted nothing to do with me. So from that day on, for decades, I believed she was a nun, and she was, you know, in a nun's habit. Every picture in my mind of her in the middle of the night when you have these thoughts was, you know, a nun doing good deeds. And, and as it turned out, decades later, decades and decades later, I discovered that at that very time, She'd resigned as a nun and she was living under the same roof as my birth father. Yeah, wow. Just going back to like the, like how, how far into it did you get that um, information about her med, like the medical records? Cause she was probably very, you know, f- from what you were talking about with your book, that she just didn't give a lot of information over such a long period of time. When did you actually get that medical history or records? It was roughly. 20 years later. So you've had, you'd had your kids and, you know, they're well and truly into their teenage years. and Yeah, 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 all done and dusted. And, yeah, it, look, it was roughly 20 years later and the, Kate has been fabulous in sort of maintaining this very fragile relationship with my mother. She really didn't want to deal with me at all. So over this last 30, 40 years, Kate has had some conversations on the phone with my mother, but with me, she really only wanted to deal with with me through letter. And look, there's only been a handful of them, but you know, probably half a dozen going each way, and a number of things I'd sent. So bits and pieces came out, and eventually, you know, Kate did talk to my mother after I sent a letter, and they had a conversation, and she agreed the next month to talk to me, and we had a conversation, and then the next year, so it was 2008, we had a conversation. For the first time, and she t- she told me some of these things, and and I learned of you know potential. She had, I think, six siblings, 
So there were some birth issues that I needed to be wary of and potentially my kids, but it sort of felt like, you know, closing the gate, the horse had bolted, you know, I was nearly 50. And, and she wasn't terribly forthcoming. You know, it was dribs and drabs, not very forthcoming. And she had, over that 20-year period, told me a lot of things that weren't true. She did at one stage tell me the name of my birth father, and Paul Hayes was what she told me. And I hired a private detective who ran around Sydney for a few months trying to track down every Paul Hayes that existed in Sydney over a 10-year period in the late 50s and early 60s. And he eventually came back and said, look, the name's invented. It's not true. This is a common occurrence for many people that are adopted that he was hired to pursue. So that answered half of my story, potentially, or at least it was some information. You know, the, the best thing was to hear that my mother and most of her siblings lived to a ripe old age. Mm. And, you know, they were all sort of 70s and 80s and parents, maternal parents had got to 80s or maybe even 90s. But the other half of the story, the paternal story, I didn't have. And, of course, you know, my thinking was, well, she doesn't want anything to do with me. Maybe he does. And, you know, I, I had these two wonderful grandchildren. They were her only grandchildren. It just seemed bizarre that they were two wonderful people and my birth mother wanted nothing to do with them. So at that stage, so... 2008, 2009, I gave up and thought, well, I'll never find out anything more than this. She really wants nothing to do with me and most of the things she's told me have proven not to be true. So I let it go. And it wasn't until, you know, another six, seven years later when DNA, you know, and ancestry in Australia became commonly available and I felt as though I'd gone back to the well so many times to find out the story of my ancestry. And every time I'd run into a brick wall or found things I didn't want to find out. But uh, eventually I couldn't resist and in 2015 did my, my DNA. Yeah. So I guess like all of those things that she was telling you in dribs and drabs over the years, not true, but just almost like biding her time, just sort of giving you enough to kind of maybe give you a few months to go off and contemplate and process and and go for, you know, research who this Paul Hayes was and then come back and say, well, no, that's not true, but it it might have taken you a few months to realise that. And then you said something about how she said that it'll be all revealed once she passes away. So you would check your calendar every year just to just to check if, you know, she had passed away, if there was a death certificate or something because you were kind of at that point realising, well, you're not going to get information out of her when she's alive, that it's all kind of going to be revealed after she passes away. Yeah, and I know a number of other adoptees have similar sorts of experiences where, you know, it, it's a controlling thing. You, you, you're sort of encouraged to be a, a good boy or girl and not cause trouble because if you do, the story will be answered after their passing. You know, I've heard of a number of people that, you know, have had intimated to them that your mother or father's solicitor has been instructed to pass a letter on after their passing to adoptive children and it's sort of about you know just be good be quiet don't cause 
waves and all will be revealed but not when I'm alive. So I, I was angry about that. You know, this I had I was totally powerless. And I know she was also very anxious about being exposed as being my mother. I only found out in very recent years that she was incredibly anxious about me showing up and knocking on her door and you know, friends and family and neighbours having it revealed that I was her son, or or even worse, going to the church and saying one of your nuns has had a child and won't have anything to do with him. And and, and I should say it's important to, to note that she wasn't a nun when I was conceived and born. She had been in a, a convent and and had left and a couple of years or thereabouts had me to my priest father and then a year or so later joined a different order essentially to pay for her sins and stayed there for 25 years, her sin being me. So I had sympathy for her. You know, it, 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 uh, you know it's such a mixed, complex relationship with her. Generally speaking, for the majority of the time I've known of her existence, I've been really angry at her. And it's only in doing the research on the book and finding out about many, many other people like her all I feel is enormous sympathy that she's a victim. She's actually the primary victim of the church, as all the mothers of priest children are, and the secondary victims are the, the hidden children. But she had a lifetime of pain with that secret. I've only known about you know my paternal answer for five years, and I have enormous sympathy for her now, and would do anything to assist her. And she's you know. Still alive, but you know, he's ninety in the you know not too distant future, and she just wants to be left alone. And I'll, I'll absolutely leave her alone. And you know, I've gone to great pains to hide her identity and where she lives and details about her life and her family. But look, she's had a a really difficult time of it. And the thing that is infuriating is the priests, many priests that have children, have multiple children. And like those that have abused children, they often by their bishop are moved off to the next parish or the next town, another state, maybe overseas, and they keep doing what they're doing. The church knows about these things and it goes to enormous pains to make it difficult for the children and impossible for the mothers. Yeah, whatever the system is, that it's it's it had been has been working for them. What would have been the consequences if they broke the non disclosure agreement? Well, many of the mothers, as I say, are, you know, are vulnerable. So they don't sort of have necessarily educational resources or ability to work out what that means. But very often it's implied. So, you know, if there's a single mother with a child and she goes to the, the, the church and says, I've had a child, it's to the priest, I have nothing, they're destitute essentially. Most commonly, in my anecdotal experience, the church encourages the woman to give the child away. Some priests, as on the Compass show I was on on the ABC, the church encourages abortion and very strongly insists removing the child. So adoption most commonly, and this is anecdotal, so there's never been firm research done on this. There is on the children of priests, not extensively, but there is some academic research that, you know, that 56% that I quoted earlier goes, 
or speaks to. And so she, she yeah, look, she just had no options and, and nor did the other mothers and w- was very much painted into a corner. And the implied confidentiality agreements whilst the child was being raised was if you speak, if people find out, you're not going to have the roof over your head. Those that have signed a document, and I don't know that my mother signed a document, but there's some information in the book that suggests that something has gone on because some assets have been moved from one place to another, and I don't know why the church would do it unless they knew of me. So the NDAs, one of the most insidious parts of it is even confirming that you've signed one is a breach of the NDA. So whatever you've been given, you lose. So very often it's accommodation. Sometimes it's, you know, a cash payout of some sort. And even confirming it's happened is a breach. So the people that have signed them and those that have signed them and spoken to me, even telling me <laughs> confidentially, is a breach of the NDA. And I should stress, the NDAs, these are the tools of, you know, Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, and these are the tools of uh, perpetrators to, to control and silence victims. And this is what the Catholic Church has been doing. And even um, priests, in terms of their illegitimate children and relinquishing them, they have no financial responsibility so that they don't have any physical responsibility to be paternally available at any point in your life but even like any of his accumulated wealth or assets or anything that would just go straight back to the church Mm. which is why the catholic church was so successful back in the 12th century when they introduced this celibacy rule you know they found the priests had families previous to that and you know, if they had offspring, that they had a financial commitment and so money was being drawn out of the church. And when the priest died, the assets would go to the children. When the church introduced the celibacy law, any inheritance remained within the church and the church having the priest that didn't have financial obligations exterior to the institution, the wealth remained in the church, and that's where the Catholic Church really took off. That's where the Catholic Church financially became incredibly powerful. And um, so it was able to build these great churches and seminaries and monasteries, and it became a haven for people who were poor. They could become a priest or a nun or a brother because this institution could take them in, and they were they got respect, but they also got three meals a day, and they got a roof over their head. And it's where the Catholic Church became incredibly powerful. It was it was the line in the sand for the church, and they could have children and not have any responsibility of those children. Yeah, that's right. So there's a very sort of boggy grey definition of celibacy within the church. That you speak to ten people about it, they'll give you. 10 different stories, but celibacy is more around marriage rather than not having sex. And if you believe Richard Syke, who's probably the most respected academic that's looked into this issue, he's found that roughly 50% of priests globally aren't celibate. And so if they're not celibate, and, you know, given what the church thinks about adoption and abortion, there's going to be a whole lot of kids around. 
Yep. And what is the stats on how many kids globally are in the same sort of position as you or over, over a span of time that you've done your research on? Yeah. Coping International is an Irish institution that's supported by the church, talks about more than 20,000. There's a German academic, Doris Reisinger, who has done fabulous research into this space. She calls it reproductive abuse, but within the church. And she, you know, doesn't attempt to nail a figure down, but she, she talks about in the barest minimum, a hundred thousand children of priests that have been hidden. So look, nobody knows. And, you know, one of the interesting things about this is, you know, and I think that it sort of ties in with adoption too, is that it's only in recent years really that from home affordable DNA is, is uncovering these secrets, you know, the, the genie is leaving the bottle when someone does a DNA test and the person you thought was your father is not your father. And so many children of priests are being discovered in this way. Yeah, wow. And tell me about your father, your birth father. You describe him as a dusty old salesman for God. Yeah, look, when I found out his name, he'd been dead for 30 years. So, yeah, you know, he was from another generation. He was born in 1902. So he, he was of another era and he was another generation to my birth mother too, being 30 years older. But he, yeah, look, he had a, a very unusual life. He was one of the youngest of 14 in Sydney, Irish Catholics, was a house builder throughout his 20s and was very successful and ended up with a few houses to his name and a lot of money in the, the Great Depression occurred and Late in life, he decided to become a priest. In those days, the only place you could go if you were over 30 was overseas. He went to Rome, studied in a, a Roman seminary near the Vatican. War broke out and he ended up going to an Irish monastery, Trappist monastery, and finished his seven years. Was ordained in Ireland, came back to Australia, and because he was very handy as a house builder, they said, oh, we need we need someone to build churches and whatever else, you know, repair buildings and and and, and do physical work in the outback. And they, so they sent him to northern South Australia. And essentially, he's he practiced his essentially missionary work between Broken Hill and Port Augusta in South Australia, and uh, and did a, a whole lot of building. And he. You know, there's a, a number of newspaper articles about him, and in younger years, he was a a Bondi lifesaver, and he was ballroom dancer, and in his later years, because he had money as a priest, he travelled the world, and he had a bizarre, enormous life in many ways, and he it's also had one child. Yes, just one. Is that well, hundred percent well, confirmed, or he still? No, no, it's not. You know, when I spoke to Broken Rights, the person I spoke to there was also the child of a priest, and they said, look, I'll put money on, there'll be siblings, there'll be more, because the priest normally didn't stop at one. And that's one of the interesting things. I don't think I am going to do it, but, you know, if you put your DNA in the three other sites, you know, there's sort of four major DNA providers, and I'm with Ancestry, and I don't think I want to find out if there's more siblings. I made well through Ancestry, but I feel as though I spent so many years on this 
Mm. I don't want to keep going. I feel as though the book is the line in the sand for me that it's putting the past in the past. Because he would have been in his 60s when he had you, is that right, or 50-something? Yeah. So they would be older. The half-siblings would be older potentially. Yeah, look, anything's possible and there are a number of other children of priests that I know that have siblings of all sorts of ages. Yeah, look, I, I to be honest, uh, I'd prefer not to know. I've been incredibly curious this last 60 years to find out everything I possibly can. Uh, to me, the book is the end of it. Look, I'm really lucky that the things I found out, I found out late in life and I was, you know, um, as I say, had a great adoptive experience with my adoptive family and I have wonderful, wonderful family of my own and, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But people that discover these things you know, when they're not sort of financially established or they have other issues and they're wrestling with their life, it can be, yeah, totally destabilising. And and I've done this obsessively. So, yeah, look, it's time to stop. Yeah. I just wanted to, yeah, maybe finish off that, you know, that, that any adoptees listening to this story who believe they are children of priests and wish to search for their biological families, you know, what would you what would you say? What advice would you give? And what are some, I guess, first steps in encouraging them if they really want to pursue this process? I'd probably say think twice about doing it. If you've done your DNA and it points to a priest, you really need to think about what it is you want to find out, whether or not you want this information. It sounds self-serving, but everything I've found of significance is in my book. You don't have to buy it and get it from the library, but you know, I think there's a lot of useful information in it. I'd strongly encourage people not to go to the church, or at least if they do, to do that as the last port of call, because just about everybody I know in this boat has gone to the church and has had a very difficult time. People, a lot of people will pray for you if that's what you're looking for, but that's the last thing I wanted. So I'd be encouraging people to you know, use agencies, you know, like if they have been adopted, like Vanish. But also there's a whole lot of lawyers that specialise in this space who are very well informed and compassionate. And I think you have to sit down. I didn't sit down and have an answer to what was I wanting to find, what was it that I would find was going to close the book for me. And I wasn't looking for... Um, another family. I wasn't looking for hugs or pats or I just wanted an explanation to all of these loose ends. And so, yeah, I think people are going to think really carefully about what it means for them and how much time they want to devote to this thing. It's opening Pandora's box. And to also think about the impact it has on birth parents, biological relatives, and what it, what impact it might have on your own family and your own relationships. Because if it is tied to the church, there's going to be a lot of shame and trauma for the people that are being involved if they're still alive. So, yeah, think carefully. But, look, I'm really glad I did what I did. I wouldn't have been able to settle without obsessively doing this over the last, well, decades, but intensively over the last four or five years. So it, it's finding out what I found out. I had no regrets. It's not what I 
wanted to find out, but I'm really glad I've done it. I'm really glad I've written the book, got it out of it, or got it out of my head, published the thing and moved on. And I think everyone's got to kind of have a think about what it is you really want to find out. If you're the child of, of a priest, maybe if you read my book, you might think, all right, I really don't want to go down that path. And, yeah. and I, th- I think I, I totally get it. I think that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, that's true. And I think, and you had um, some great support with Kate as well, just throughout your whole story. Um, she was always beat. She was always there with you doing the research. And so it is good to have sort of a partner in crime like that, that, that you know is just going to pick you up when you need to be picked up, give you your rest in your downtime. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it'd be hard to do it on your own. Yeah. Oh, look, I think almost impossible. And, and family and friends. Kate's been. Unbelievable as the book attests, but you know, I've got a bunch of friends that have sort of come along this bumpy ride as well. That it, it couldn't have happened without them, and so I've been really fortunate. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of children of priests have for decades, and this is one of you know, the other little bugbears I've had is that you know, for decades have been seeing psychologists and paying for this, you know, fairly expensive support for decades and decades of their life. You know, in the very least, you would think the Catholic Church would feel an obligation to support these people in that way, and they don't. On occasion, they might give someone six visits to a psychologist. I know people that have been seeing psychologists their entire life, people without financial resources, and it's the only way they've been able to keep themselves on their track. And, you know, I'd like the church to be shamed into taking some responsibility for those things that they've been a party to. Yeah, is that something that you would advocate for, I guess, in moving forwards? Yeah, yeah, of course. I did go and talk to someone when when I had that second rejection. But I, I've also been an avid reader, and so I've done extensive reading on on the sort of psychological issues and aspects and traumas, and you know, I've gone down a lot of rabbit holes trying to unravel how I feel about things. And, and it made the easiest, the easier and more logical ways to just go and talk to a counsellor or a psychologist of some sort and deal with it in that way. There is somebody, and her name isn't popping into my head, in Australia that does specialise now in and and has experience in this area. You know, you might find that if you're dealing with somebody that's Catholic and knows nothing about um, hidden children of priests, it might be difficult. But there is somebody who, well, there's a link on my website to that person. But... Yeah, look, it's a tricky indexed field and, and getting as much support from family, friends and psychologists and lawyers and very often a crime has been committed, talking to a lawyer, maybe talking to the police and um, the church, as I said earlier, I think is probably the last place I'd be going unless you really felt confident about where you stood, what your rights were. Yeah, that's really well said. I think we'll leave it there. That was really amazing. Thank you so much for, you know, your time and and being on the Australian Adoption Podcast. It's been a pleasure to listen to your story. Thank you. Thanks, Nadia. Yeah, Yeah, I enjoyed it. That was great.